Welcome to episode 36 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Saitman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about interference in the U.S. election, we get back to the topic of sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces, and we share costume ideas for Halloween. In our Ask an Expert segment, Dr. Lynn Gulliker and Dr. Carmen Poulin from the PSEC Research Group answer a question about the LGBT purge campaign in the Canadian military. Our feature interview is with Luke Schlesner, president and co-founder of Out in National Security and a fellow with the Truman National Security Project. At the very end of the episode, you'll find Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Steve. Thank you. I'm preparing for Halloween. Always a busy week when you have kids. And what are you dressing up as? Oh, I'm dressing up as a female version of Pennywise. My goal this year is to be scarier than the virus, to be honest, <laughs> for the kids, uh, to, to be a welcome distraction. I know you care a lot about Halloween. Do you have any plans for getting dressed up? I haven't figured it out yet. Obviously, the most important thing is to dress warmly. So I'm thinking of wearing my moose patterned onesie or giving candy out if anybody shows up. Ottawa's COVID situation is pretty bad, so we may not see many trick-or-treaters. But I, I think going at, giving candy out as a Canadian toddler might make sense. I could probably dress up one of my water bottles as a baby bottle and just sit there and, and hand out candy and cry a lot. Cry a lot about the upcoming election, maybe? Yeah, it, I'm in a state of, of anger and frustration right now. We had scheduled to talk about election interference for this podcast. And so we'll talk about that in a minute. But I think we weren't imagining that the US Supreme Court would be the primary interferer in election. Uh, last night's decision to stop the counting in Wisconsin at the stroke of midnight, because how dare you count votes after election day, drives me crazy, particularly since the Supreme Court is now full of originalists who like to look back at the, the U.S. Constitution and try to imagine what the, the folks who founded the country were thinking in 1787. Well, one of the things they thought in 1787 was to have the inauguration in March because they figured it would take a long time to count the ballots. They weren't going to all count ballots on election day. So this whole idea that we need to have the ballots counted by the end of election day is just obscene. So I'm really, really angry about that. In fact, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning in a bad mood. The good news is that I have a book that downloaded on my Kindle last night, so I was able to read that to get back into a better mood. So I'll talk about in the R&R segment. Uh, let's talk a little bit about election interference. In the news, it was not just the Supreme Court, but that last week, the U.S. trotted out stories about the Iranians and the Russians. The Iranians apparently were the ones who were pretending to be Proud Boys, threatening Floridian voters not to vote for the Democrats. And the U.S. intelligence agencies also put out warnings that the Russians may put out all kinds of misinformation on election day uh, about the outcomes of the various states to create confusion. As someone who is not quite as invested in the American election as I am, what are your, your reactions to these reports of election interference? Yeah, so this is nothing new for Russia, uh, which has lots to benefit from sowing discord during and after the election, or just really to work hard to get Trump reelected. Iran is, is somewhat 
new, but more generally, China, Iran, and Russia can amp up the disinformation about voter fraud and can really count on President Trump to do the same. So I think that the way that you started this discussion by talking about domestic sources and foreign sources is, is actually quite relevant. And if the outcome of the election is not immediately clear, we can expect more interference from foreign powers. So I think we're very focused now on pre-election interference, but we also have to worry about post-election interference. And the other thing I find scary is that if the result is clear, they can still work to incite violence because mm -hmm. there, there will be anger. And that anger has been provoked by, by the, the current president. At the end of the day, of course, these efforts will only work if Americans have doubts about the integrity of the election and of the democratic process. And there's a week left before the election. So this is the message that must be repeated. Just don't buy into this, whether it's coming mm. from Trump's tweets or, or Iran. But I can certainly understand that you're having sleepless nights over this. Uh, and even though now you're also a Canadian citizen, your focus must be almost unwavering when it comes to the news coverage over this election. Yeah, and I, I think there's some good news the past couple of weeks, which is that the Russians dropped some stuff in the lap of Giuliani that was supposed to incriminate Hunter Biden, the son of Joe Biden. And the mainstream media mostly covered it as, wow, the Russians are doing this, as opposed to raising issues about whether Biden is corrupt, whether Hunter Biden is corrupt, all that sort of stuff. It was, it was a pretty ham-handed effort, but the media, to a large degree, didn't exaggerate it. We're not seeing the same kind of, oh, his emails kind of thing mm. from four years ago. So the good news about this is that the American media is a bit more prepared by that. And yes. even Twitter or and Facebook immediately slapped that stuff into a different category of, of stuff. So they didn't really uh, disseminate it as widely. But the thing is, is that we already have a very, very polarized situation. We have the, you know, Joe, Joe Biden's favorables are above 50%. We have more than half of the people voting have already voted, essentially, or something close to it. There's been an incredible amount of early voting. And so a lot of this stuff at the last minute can't really sway things that much because people have already have already voted. And if those votes get counted, then we'll get the outcome that will not you know, be affected by all this, all this last minute stuff. I think combine that with a pandemic and Trump's handling of COVID, and it's gonna be really hard for these folks to penetrate, to shape the actual voting. But I think you're right that, you know, one thing the Russians did four years ago was that they organized Facebook events for both pro and anti-Trump voters to appear at the same spot to try to trigger conflict. And they may do something like that again in the aftermath of it. I think there will be a violence around the election. I don't think there'll be the civil war that people have been predicting. But I do think that one thing that might be very likely is for there to be protesters and counter-protesters. I don't know which will be who will be which, depending on who, who shows up first and who wins the election. But at an event where you have protesters and counter-protesters, one set of protesters is going to be more heavily armed than the other. And instead of just having right-wing extremists drive through crowds like they've been doing all summer long, you might actually see them shooting. And that will be a problem. I mean, we just had a report this week that uh, the damage done during the Minneapolis protests in what was it, May or June, was done by not the Black Lives Matter folks that were accused of it, but by a boogaloo, a guy who wants to have a second world war. For those who aren't familiar with the boogaloo movement, their name comes from, yes, the movie Breaking to Electric Boogaloo, where they've taken Civil War to Electric Boogaloo 
and shorted it to Boogaloo. And so you've got these folks who want a second civil war. And so they've been instigating violence all across the summer, including arson and other things during Black Lives Matter protests, trying to make it look like there's a race war going on to try to get the civil war that they've been looking for. So we may see more of that on election day and the days after. And what should Canada do in this context? I know there have been a few stories about Canada needing to develop contingency plans for the Mm -hmm. border in case there are any disruptions between the moment of the election and let's say the inauguration. I suppose keeping the border closed to non-essential travel makes this contingency planning easier in a way, but what do you think Canada should do? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with the one thing, which is that some of the Proud Boys are Canadian. And some of the white supremacists in the United States are from Canada. So if we can limit the people traveling back and forth, that's one thing. The second thing is that Canadians need to be vigilant about their own media consumption, that the rebel is promoting a lot of the same white supremacist garbage that various outlets in the United States are. And we have seen the rise of QAnon type groups in Canada. The guy who penetrated the Rideau facilities a few months ago was, was a reader consumer of QAnon. So this stuff is not just an American thing. Canada has its own white supremacist problem. It has its own QAnon problem. So we have to make sure that those folks are being watched, that if they start to act on their crazy beliefs, that they are interrupted by the security forces. You know, the funny thing is, is that in the United States, Trump has been talking for four years about Antifa violence. That is the forces of anti-fascism are accused of being violent but almost all the violence has been coming from the right wing. And that's been true in Canada as well. And so that's really where we need to put our resources is in dealing with that. We interviewed Barb Perry a couple of weeks ago Mm -hmm. about that. And that's been a theme uh, that we've been facing. So I think Canada has to deal with its own problems. Uh, You know, if there's violence in the United States, that's gonna be a problem for the Americans. It's a question of whether it spills over here has to do more with the folks who are already here. That's true. And, And I really think that after the election, Steve, we need to have a conversation about the future of Canadian foreign and defense policy. I mean, we've been putting so much stuff on pause because of the election, kind of a wait and see approach. And I think this is, this is sound. But once all of this madness is uh, behind us, I think it would be a good opportunity to think about Canada's future foreign policy. And to do that, we're armed with brand new data that the CDSN helped collect. I didn't receive the full report, but you received it from uh, Jean-Christophe Boucher and Nick Nanos. Can you give us maybe a teaser or preliminary highlights? Sure. Uh, One of the things the CDSN has funded was a survey of 1,500 Canadians. We made sure that it was a balance across the country and a balance among genders and a balance amongst different ethnic groups to get a real good picture of views of Canadians about the Canadian Armed Forces and about the threats that face us. I think there's a lot to go through. So I just want to highlight one thing because today our Ask the Expert in feature interviews both deal with it being our LGBTQ Pride Month. So one of our questions was about whether the Canadian forces are on the right track or wrong track in inclusion, comparing inclusion of the Francophones to including inclusion of gender, inclusion of visible minorities, inclusion of Indigenous people, and inclusion of members from the LGBTQ2S community. And what I found most striking and what JC found most striking about these results was first, of all the questions that JC addressed in, in a briefing we had with D&D yesterday, we got the most unsure answers. That is, people were unsure and didn't have an opinion on the inclusion question. That is that depending on which question was asked, between 20 to 32 percent were simply unsure about the status of francophones in the military, of women in the military, of visible minorities, of indigenous people. 
and of LGBTQ2S people in the military. And so that was very striking that this issue by itself of inclusion is poorly understood, or maybe it's well understood that they feel that we should be unsure about the status of these people because we don't know how well included they are. What was otherwise striking was that roughly half the people who, who were asked felt that the CAF was on the right track in including Francophones. And that number was higher in Quebec and then in the rest of Canada, I think. I'll have to take a look at the survey again. That women were seen, 44% thought women were on the right track or the CAF was on the right track, including gender. 40% thought that Canada was, the CAF was on the right track for including visible minorities. 31% thought Canada was the right track of including indigenous people. And 30% thought Canada was on the right track for including members of the LGBTQ2S community. And I was kind of surprised by that because I just thought perceptions would be different given there's been a lot of talk lately about the military showing up at gay at uh, pride events, that the CAF in the US Twitter account uh, was very visible about trying to repurpose the Proud Boys label to deal with LGBTQ people. There's a great picture of, of two male uh, one male sailor coming home and, and being greeted in a classic kissing the loved one, but it was a male loved one a couple of weeks ago that got a lot of media attention, but it turns out mm -hmm. Twitter is not real life. I was kind of surprised. I thought given all the negative stories about how women are, are, are being included in the military, that the gender issue would have been seen as less favorable, that the inclusion of gender would have been gotten more negative views, more seen as be more on the wrong track. What do you think about that? I, I kind of agree. Uh, over the summer and the fall, there's been a big focus on hateful conduct. And during our last episode, we, we talked about uh, sexual harassment and assault in Canadian military colleges. And since our last episode, a DRDC study that has been uncovered about sexual misconduct and assault in the Canadian Armed Forces was written about by Murray Brewster. And the main findings which uh, were resulting from uh, 67 interviews conducted with current and former service members is that the chain of command is not supportive of victims. And we, we keep hearing about these policies and certainly the very top military leaders have been really vocal, wanting to eradicate hateful conduct and wanting to eradicate uh, sexual mis misbehavior. This DRDC study coming up just uh, sheds light on the fact that maybe at, at lower levels, uh, with the people you interact with on the daily basis, the chain of command is just not as supportive uh, as it should be when it comes to dealing with, with victims and survivors of sexual misconduct and assault. Uh, reporting is up, so that's good. People are being charged. There's progress there, but victims continue to suffer from stigma and social isolation in their workplace when they when they do report, and that has to change. We received a couple of questions that we didn't use last time that we wanted to answer this time. We already talked about our regular Halloween costumes. Is there anything you're planning on wearing this week for Halloween when you Zoom with your friends and co colleagues? <laughs> Well, luckily, Halloween's on a Saturday, and I'm not planning to have Zoom meetings on Saturday. But if we were getting dressed up to record a special episode of Battle Rhythm on Halloween, I suppose I could fairly easily put together an Ivanka Trump look. <laughs> <laughs> I would need to uh, straighten my hair and put on lots of eyeshadow. I could sound like a robot and talk about Sundays. Would that work? You need a can of beans. You need to have a big can of beans to promote. What about you? 
Well, for me, Halloween is always a week long set of festivities. When I was back at McGill, I'd, I'd dress up on or near Halloween in order to raise money for UNICEF. And I usually would do something that was related to class. I dressed up as Indiana Jones and then talked about colonialism. I dressed up as Dread Pirate Roberts from Princess Bride to talk about piracy. I once dressed up as Che Guevara. So what do I do this time around? I might dress up as the virus since <laughs> so that's shaping international relations these days. The good news is people, if they zoom this week, they can play with the filters, not just the backgrounds, but the filters. I was wearing a, a, a burglar's outfit when, when uh, Stephanie saw me at first uh, for today's recording of the podcast. Is that what that was? Okay. <laughs> I think so. Either that or it was um, the shadow or uh, right. it might've been a Green Hornet costume. Right. Uh, I think the most popular costume this year will be the fly that is <laughs> on Mike Pence's head during the vice presidential debate. Yeah, color your hair white and then put a big fly on your head. That, that, that's that's an easy way to go. I'm, I'm kind of disappointed in Zoom they haven't already created that filter. <laughs> Tell us what we have up ahead. We have an Ask an Expert segment, right, with uh, Dr. Lynn Goulquet and Dr. Carmen Poulin, who are professors and co-directors at the PSEC Research Group. And then we have a feature interview, which you led. Yes. Luke Schleusner is the president and co-founder of Out in National Security and a security fellow with the Truman National Security Project. He also served as a speechwriter for several defense secretaries under the Obama administration. I talked with Luke about uh, his work in creating an organization for LGBTQ people in the national security sphere in the United States. Uh, we also talked about his work in the defense contracting business and his time as, as uh, in the Pentagon writing speeches for these, these defense secretaries. And the Ask the Expert uh, segment with Dr. Golikar and Dr. Poulin was basically about the purge and the effects of the purge, which is that the Canadian Armed Forces tried to get rid of people from the LGBTQ2S community over a period of time. And, they, and so they, they were asked essentially, what was the purge and what are the effects of that? So we have a longer than usual Ask the Expert segment because there's two of them. And the issue was not just fascinating, but really important. And given that it is LGBTQ Pride Month, it made sense to feature both sets of interviews to talk about this element of the diversity in the Canadian Armed Forces that doesn't always get a lot of attention. And as we said in the survey, is seen as, as not as on the right track as other other dimensions. So uh, that's our uh, pairing the, the Ask the Expert with the, the feature interview to focus on that theme for this week. Those are really great interviews. And in fact, we always listen to the interviews ahead of them airing. And it was very difficult to cut anything from those interviews, just fascinating stuff. And I really look forward also to our next episode because it seems like a, like such a big event next week and i know we'll have lots to discuss and in, in, in a sense uh, doing the episode right after the election feels almost daunting but I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing that with you and that will also be the one where we talk a little bit about remembrance day since it's going to be the one closest to remembrance day if That's i get right. my dates right i'll get your puppies out on sunday november 1st and before that there's halloween so happy halloween steve happy halloween steph enjoy the day with the kids thank you talk to you soon talk to you soon My name's Lynn Golliker. I'm an associate professor in sociology at Laurentian University in Ontario. 
And I have 16 years um, past service uh, time. I'm also a purge veteran. I lived through a part of the purge campaign, the LGBT purge campaign that the military, the civil service and the RCMP conducted for, for many years. I'm Carmen Poulin, an associate dean in the Faculty of Arts at the University of New Brunswick. And my uh, discipline is psychology. And I've been working in collaboration with Dr. Lynn Golliker for almost 30 years now in terms of various research projects on marginality. So when we were doing our project on the LGBT purge, or how it started really was to look at this experience that lesbians had to be in the military and being closeted, because when we started to talk about this whole thing, that was the reality of these women. We thought, okay, we're going to look at this and get this experience because these women are going to retire soon, and we will miss those stories. But as we started, and we tried to understand how the military was making sense of or dealing with uh, sexual orientation, how the, for instance, the CFAO 1920 had allowed the military to, or sanctioned the military to do this discrimination against LGBT. To understand how the military dealt with this whole problem, because it was conceptualized as a problem, we realized that it wasn't going to be sufficient to ask just women, and we needed to also ask men. I think the experience of men really felt so incredibly different. Men seemed to have two lives, one that was lived completely into the military in terms of, you know, they ate there, they slept there, they lived their lives there in, in a total institution fashion, to borrow from the famous author Goffman. And then they had their other life comprised of, you know, being completely separate from their military life. And they would go to places that was safe for gay people to be, to find each other, such as bars on city streets. And in contrast to that, what we had found out from lesbians, they were living their lives in the military. They were having their relationship, their intimate relationship, their friends, their partners, and everything with other women in the military or with people who hung out with military women. The experience of women and men were very different. And we do have done research on that very issue in terms of the LGBT people in the Canadian military and the policy that actually prohibited them from serving or being out in the military that was uh, taken or gotten rid of in 1992. And so we interviewed a lot of men and women, gay men, lesbian women, and some trans as well, the LGBT uh, bi people, interviewed them and got their stories. And a lot of it was historical during the purge campaign. And one of the questions that we get asked quite often actually is, was it worse for gay men 
or was it worse for gay women? And I say gay women because that was a term that people tended to call or speak of themselves back then as well. So gay women, lesbians and that. So people were inherently interested in it had to be different for both them. And we did see, quote unquote, I would say differences. But the answer is there was differences. We cannot answer, was it worse for one or the other? Because the difference between when you start intersecting gender and what was happening for men and what was happening for women was so very different in that context of the Canadian military. So worse, I don't think I, that's not a word that exists in our research or my research vocabulary. Women, the lesbians, there was a lot of gendered sexual violence in the interaction of the institution and other men in the military towards them that was different than the gay man. The women, how were they caught? Like it was just like a network. Women would know who other women were on the base. You, they would know everybody. It's sort of like everybody was networked. So if you knew one, you knew 10 women, 10 lesbians I'm talking about. So there was this huge... That would be huge in the context of back then and in the military. They, would, they knew people. And if we interviewed one, they easily could name 10 other people that they knew and actually would talk to. And um, so that was interesting in itself. But it was also a way of the military where they could find the, then the gay women in the military back then. as They were all in these sort of groups. And if they could get into one group and let's say isolate them and interrogate them, which they did, they might get a few more names. Whereas for the men, the difference that we noticed, and it's the difference then uh, in terms of these networks, if we asked a gay man, because that's how we would get other names of people to interview, they call it the snowball method. And we would ask, do you know anybody? They might have one other name, but they didn't really know them. They knew kind of of them or they had seen them around the base and they sort of thought that they might be gay. So the network for the gay man was so much more different. And the gay men faced the tyranny of masculinity in a different way than the women faced they faced a tyranny of just being a woman and not a man in a man's activity. So the tyranny of masculinity held the gay man to be this masculine, macho warrior, and that they couldn't be effeminate in any way. And the difference for the women in terms of that is women couldn't escape being feminine or being effeminate that was assumed that they were. And that was seen as weakness in this masculine, man-dominated activity of uh, soldiering or war activities. The other aspect that was different was how men and, and how affected that community was by the AIDS crisis at the time of the purge and when the purge was really intense and even at, right after. So the presence of AIDS created some unique circumstances, especially for men in the military when they were partnered. But this was a later experience than most of the people who had lived through the beginning and the sort of heights of the purge had been people who had lived their lives really separately in a more, much more, I would advance to say, impersonal. Not to suggest that gay men don't make partnership and long-term partnership, but it was to protect themselves 
uh, that they led their lives separately. And women used a different strategy. They would have networks of parties and get together that were much more home-based, very, very carefully planned. They had almost like codes of how to talk about certain things. They would very stereotypically be in, involved with each other around sports because that seemed to facilitate the hiding of the intimate relationships in a way that was less noticeable because they had to be in leagues of women. How that all took place for men and women was quite different. And men and women who were gay did not necessarily know each other because those networks were not overlapping. First of all, the network of men typically were outside of the military and those of women were inside and attached to the military. And also because men really didn't have a place to meet or to allow that knowledge to go anywhere in the context of the military to facilitate establishing personal relationship therein. And women dealt with the intersection of gender and sexual victimization, whether or not they're a heterosexual woman or a lesbian, but there were abuse that took place that we were told about in our research that, of course, would be labeled in some milieu as corrective rape, which were quite horrendous experiences and so appalling, of course, and leaving such scars, psychological trauma, etc. The policing of gay men and gay women were more, again, in terms of gendered lines. So women could thread a line in terms of being stereotypically butch, in terms of if we go and think about those stereotypes or the, those schema that we use, they could be acting more butch and be a bit safer because the military is such a patriarchal organization wants to and the typical soldier the the one that we assume when we say here's a soldier we assume that person to be a man so women if they were more uh, masculine would have an easier time in terms of their gender expression in the context of the military if they erred in that direction than men erring in the opposite direction in fact I think for men, that area was very narrow. In terms of women, it's more in terms of how do they fit there in the first place, whether or not they are lesbians or heterosexual is an issue. They have to overcome stereotypes against being a woman. One of the difficulties for women, because their network were within the military, is that the moment they would be investigated at the height of the purge, if they were investigated, they became a danger for their peers. And by that, uh, what I mean is that they were suspected in the middle of an interrogation, in the investigation of who else could would possibly be a lesbian or, or gay men, but it's usually a lesbian, they were trying to get out of them. And no matter whether or not 
someone who would be interrogated spoke, she was suspected to be telling. But even without telling, even when they trusted her not to tell, because she was investigated, they didn't want to hang out with them. So you had people who from one day of having a rich network of close friends could find themselves the next day after having been pulled out of work and interrogated to become a totally alienated and marginalized person. So when you're dealing with this kind of threat to your reality, your identity, your orientation, that you had managed to keep you know, in the closet, uh, but all of a sudden, you've been pushed out of the closet, and your friends are still in the closet, your close, closest friends are in the closet, the ones that gave you the support to go on from day to day and maintain your double life and your, your hidden life, these people could shut the door and had to shut the door to protect themselves. So it's not a question of blaming the other people, because everyone was trying to survive. But for the person who was alienated and ostracized because she became a risk to the other people, because women formed their network within the military, this was an incredibly traumatic and isolating experience, a really difficult experience. And often these people, mostly because of when the purge happened in the um, late 70s and, and in the 80s, early 80s especially, were not necessarily out to their families. And so they could find themselves from one day to the next all alone, having to deal with the end of a career, having to deal with a complete loss of their community, their friends, and everything else. So I don't think there's too many situations that could have been worse for these women than to go through this tremendous losses, like endless number of losses in the first place. So the dynamics are, are different, they're interesting, but they were not simple to live through during the purge, no matter how we look at it and from which perspective in terms of gays and lesbians. That the purge was devastating and traumatic on many levels for both the men and the women, the gay men and the gay women, mm -hmm. the lesbians and the gay men. It was traumatic. And there's no comparison of worse. It's just that it was very traumatic. And in the worst of it, as Carmen said, there was the corrective rape and then the masculinity shaming, which drove some of the men as young, because we're talking about young people here. We're talking about people in their early 20s at the cusp of just be going into adulthood and having been charmed by the military. We know because we speak to these purge veterans now, they were charmed by the military. They fell in love by the military. They were proud of the military. They loved the military. And then they were found to have done something wrong. And all it was was their sexuality. And the men were so shamed by the institution, by the interrogations, i.e. by other men, that's predominantly who being carried out the interrogations, that some of them committed suicide, which is an avenue that um, especially young men choose that more often than women. Whereas women, they'll choose something else. They'll go into depression or something like that. So the women, it was corrective rape, sexual assaults, 
that they suffered from their colleagues, you know, from their own colleagues. It was horrible, traumatic. It was some people, even the veterans themselves have referred to it as torture. Most of them survived to a certain extent, if we want to say that. And I'm super happy that there was a class action suit and it is now became a reality and some people getting some peace, I think, a little bit of peace from that what happened to the class action suit has been helpful on many levels to them and to educating Canada. Welcome to Battle Rhythm, Luke Schleusner. He is the president of Out in National Security, as well as working for a DARPA spinoff in the D.C. national security space. We're, we're talking to you today because you've, you've been involved with the CDSN for a little while. You, you came to our event last fall. You also have an interesting background working for multiple defense secretaries. So we, we thought we'd talk to you today about a bunch of different things. And the, f- the first thing I'd want to ask you is, is why did you create Out in National Security? And what is Out in National Security for that matter? Out in National Security is formerly legally about 18 months old. It's a 501c3. And in the Canadian context, that's a uh, non-government organization, charity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is meant to recruit, retain, promote LGBTQ folks in national security, connect to all the pre-existing, empl- what are often called in the U.S. employee resource groups of LGBT employees, uh, you know, whether or not they're in the government or in the private sector doing national security work, change law, policy, and custom for our people, uh, and then to do public education, which is why we're doing stuff for LGBT History Month and why you know, some of you folks have seen me on Twitter or in publications like Inkstick or Defense One discussing these issues. And I curated it with my colleagues, Sean Skelly and Rusty Pickens, because we'd had sort of the collective and very exciting experience of serving together in the Obama administration as presidential appointees, and in particular, being in and around secretaries of defense when questions of LGBT rights in military service and uh, public life were up for grabs. The struggle being that there simply were not that many of us. So quite often we were being discussed, but we weren't in the room. So we figured we should change that. And what kind of things do you guys do? So we have an annual practitioner list meant to raise the profile of LGBTQ folks. We do engagement in panels with think tanks here in Washington and universities so that we can showcase diverse LGBT talent. We are popping over to UVA via Zoom later this month with Hamad Hamad, who is a Palestinian-American Foreign Service officer and a Rusk fellow at uh, Georgetown, mm-hmm. and a young woman named uh, Rachel Thomas, who is a African-American women's peace and security officer at state and also a naval officer. And we also do a lot of publication. We have relations with the U.S. Congress, and we speak to sort of our partners both in Canada through you and then cross NATO and into the five eyes sometimes if we're lucky. Uh, is there any effort to or process for franchising so that way you can have out in national security spinoffs in <laughs> other countries or other parts of the uh, United States? That's a good question. I mean, so, so far what we are doing is we're acting as a network node that we have been connected to folks in the UK who are seeking a similar arrangement. Uh, the United Kingdom has had a sort of a, a similar but distinct path from the United States when it comes to gay rights, especially in the national security space. You know, what, what our, our view is not so much to try to, you know, to build a, a, a McDonald's of uh, professional association, but, you know, to, to encourage people to fly off like little balls of mercury and do their own thing. So that's the United Kingdom. We've also been in touch with folks in Costa Rica, Argentina, and Brazil. 
places where it's a little bit more difficult to be openly gay. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's important to us to let everyone, you know, work, work in their own cultural context rather than trying to cookie cutter this process. But we're happy to be a conduit for folks and speak about our own efforts to learn how to do this and do this well in the American context. So October is Gay History Month, Luke. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what, what research you've done in Canada that, that would help inform our audience about, about the, these kinds of things? Oh, sure. Uh, so October is Gay History Month in the U.S. Uh, it was started in 1994 by a group of high school teachers in Missouri. Uh, and they picked that because October 11th is National Coming Out Day in the United States, which is a, uh, a holiday from back before that many Americans knew that they knew gay people. And it was established... Uh, because when people know they know a, a LGBTQ person, they're more inclined to support civil and political rights for LGBTQ people. And that's been going on uh, since the Gay and Lesbian March on Washington in October 1979. Hmm. And the idea is that unlike other marginalized groups, people do not, you know, go to, you know, don't grow up in gay homes and go to gay churches or go to sort of gay majority schools, as you might, depending on sort of what other group you come from. So the idea was to both educate uh, you know, the majority about uh, LGBTQ history, which is often sort of erased, undermined, marginalized, uh, and then for your LGBTQ kids to give them a sense of who they are in the context of history rather than being sort of you know, a novel and terrifying thing based on sort of right-wing talk radio. So that's, it's a thing that I've enjoyed. It's supported in the U.S. by a variety of organizations meant to reach LGBTQ youth. Canada, of course, has had a somewhat different history than the United States when it comes to gay history and gay rights in that, uh, you know, the current prime minister's father decriminalized homosexuality in the 1960s. Uh, you know, obviously the very famous quote that, you know, the, you know, the, the laws of the nation have no place in uh, relation to them is you know, a completely different experience than we've had in the United States. Uh, more recently, Canada, like Germany, has apologized for Cold War era policies uh, that targeted and harassed uh, LGBTQ members of the civil service, the armed services. Now, I, I would suppose Canada's uh, you know, diplomatic corps as well by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, and, and the government has even established a, uh, a victims fund for the gay purge. So that is, you know, it, it's been interesting to watch NATO partners and sort of partner nations from across the Atlantic world deal with the same historical and political challenges that the United States has had, even though the U.S. is often treated as sort of a leader in gay rights in so much as gay rights organizations outside of the U.S. are, you know, for example, at the U.K., the largest one is named Stonewall after the Stonewall Uprising. Mm. But it's, it is also funny because there are things that run in parallel. Uh, for example, in the United States, there's a fr- fairly famous gay man named Frank Kemney who passed away in 2011, who has sort of a, a Canadian analog in uh, uh, George Wilkes, who was a veteran of the, the Canadian service in Korean War, who went on to be sort of a, a pioneering person in the Canadian gay rights movement because he'd had that interaction with the security services that were hostile to gay rights and at that point were concerned about the idea of LGBTQ people doing national service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, so, and so it's been fun to watch that and sort of fun to watch process and, and doing comparative history, seeing the difference between you know, a close cousin in a parliamentary system, but also the difference between what it means to fight for minority rights under the Canadian Charter versus what it is like in the United States where you have you know, democracy 1.0 in the U.S. Constitution, which generates an unbelievably high number of veto points and is also, and can also be quite sort of small C conservative in terms of transformational change for minority groups. 
Excellent. I guess one of the challenges is that your organization started during the Obama administration or shortly after? Shortly after. And I guess you may not have anticipated that the next administration would be so problematic, or maybe you did. I mean, is, is that one of the reasons why you formed, or is it that it was going to happen anyway, but now there's more energy because the Trump administration has, has been pretty hostile to LGBTQ people? I mean, the, the, sort of one of the genesis was in 2015 when the Defense Department was reviewing its the, the rules barring transgender service, and Secretary Carter was moving towards lifting that, that ban. And the idea was there was a presidential campaign then as there is now. And the idea was to speak to that gap between in the US LGBT advocacy, which is, you know, very strongly focused on civil rights and domestic policy and sort of pivoting to the fact that, you know, the, Pen the Pentagon is the United States's largest LGBT employer. It directly employs every, one in every 100 Americans. And, you know, I'm a big process nerd. This <laughs> is my Valentine. And so the idea was if you could grab and move, you know, the ship of state so that it actually treated with dignity and respect the people who, you know, raised their hand and sworn out to the Constitution to fight and die for the country, then you could get sort of watershed changes. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we had really hoped that it would be, you know, under more favorable circumstances. But the, given the moment, you know, it, it made the work all the more pressing, given that the current administration views the possibility of, you know, LGBT public service of any flavor to be a real problem because it legitimizes the idea that, you know, we are real and full citizens and we are deserving of full and equal rights. That's why they're sort of so cantankerously injecting sort of cultural war grievance into the serious business of national security governance, whether or not it's, you know, the transgender service ban or the stuff they've done to harass same-sex uniform couples. Or more recently, they're sort of their big push to undermine, I guess, diversity and inclusion training and sort of other things that are pragmatic and sensible and common, you know, I think in corporate America, but also across the world. And it's, it's really striking because I, I mean, we, we often talk about the long arc of history and all the rest of it, but it does really seem to be that the Trump administration is really retrograde, that they've really, they're really too late for their moment because there's been so much progress the past really 10, 15, 20 years of uh, uh, attitudes. I, you know, when I, I was growing up, the idea of transgender was just not something that people thought about or imagined or mm -hmm. talked about at all. And obviously at that point in time, because I'm older than you, you know, it was much more acceptable to use the word gay as an insult than it is today. Mm -hmm. And so now the only people who use it either are 12 years old or have not matured since they were 12 years old. To see the strange dynamic, I mean, I think, I guess this is probably getting us off topic. I seem to think that one of the reasons why the, the right has lost the youth to a certain degree is that everybody now knows, every kid now knows uh, kids who are LGBTQ and they're their friends, they're people they've hung out with. And, and so then they go, go to their church or they go to their parents and, and they, who spew hostility towards these people. And, and they, they just don't buy it because these people aren't aliens. They're not, you know, strangers, they're, mm -hmm. they're friends. And so I, I just think that's gonna be really hard. I, I guess the, what I'm trying to say is I guess there's some hope that, that there'll be a rebound after this administration, whatever that administration mm -hmm. ends, simply because the vast majority of Americans now and then it's true for other countries as well. The vast majority of people they, these days tend to have more tolerant and accepted views. And it's, it's, it's really hard to maintain this kind of retrograde attitude, but we'll see. We'll see in a month, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's why they are fighting so hard in terms of, you know, black letter law and judicial appointments and that sort of thing to create a space for you know, reactionary or bigoted views. One third of Generation Z, for example, doesn't identify as heterosexual. And I assume that you know, as culture becomes more permissive, that number is going to tick upwards. Yeah, uh, there's a Ipsos demographic poll from last year that, that talks about sexuality and gender identity. I mean, it's still, it's still hard, of course. More Americans know a gay or a lesbian person than a trans person. That's also sort of 
you know, statistical distribution, but we also benefit from the fact that, you know, culture and where the money is is clearly shifting away from people who dislike us and shifting towards more and more people who know us. And so it's harder to stop. But it's also why, you know, one of the contests within democracy is, you know, securing that full citizenship and, and connecting, you know, the cultural and sort of individual acceptance into le- legal and political rights. Yeah, I can't help but think about J.K. Rowling at this moment in time, unfortunately. Yeah. Some of the culture and some of the money is still on the wrong side. And for some reason, yeah. there's this subculture <laughs> in Britain that, that is driving things there that luckily it doesn't seem like the turf thing is, is quite as popular here, about popular in North America as it is in the U.K., but it's still pretty disturbing. Yeah, that's been disheartening. There was a, there's a good article um, interviewing, I want to say, Judith Butler in the New Statesman relatively recently talking mm-hmm. about how Rowling's platform makes trans-inclusionary radical feminism like seem more mainstream than it is. Mm-hmm. But then again, of course, here, here in the United States, several of the more fr- famous TERFs from the UK have been hired by The Atlantic, which is a of course, you know, a constant point of concern because on the one hand, you don't want censorship in the public sphere. On the other hand, there are people who, people and beliefs that should not be taken seriously in the public sphere. Yeah, I, this is one of the debates that, that's been going on is, is censorship versus nobody's entitled to a platform. Right. And so right. people can speak whatever they want, but you don't necessarily have to make, make them louder or more visible or, make, or give yeah. them patina of legitimacy by giving them your, your platform. That's a, a tricky issue, but I think I've always been a very much of a free speech absolutist, but these times have made me a little bit less absolute and a little more concerned mm-hmm. about empowering people who are inciting violence. Right. The stats that always bother me the most are just the rates of violence against trans people and the suicide rate of trans people, because it's just, you know, this is not just a matter of being able to live your life, your life the way you want to live it. It's a matter of being able to live. Absolutely. You've uh, worked for multiple secretaries of defense. So I'm sort of curious as to what was that was like to be a speechwriter for several different secretaries of defense. Uh, what were the sort of main takeaways you had about the general business of being uh, the speaky part of DOD when that happens to be, again, one of the titans in, in American politics? It's a tough job. I, would, I was very lucky in the sense that I got brought over and it's a really great way to learn what the Pentagon actually is and what the Pentagon actually does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's a, it is often a, a brutal because the stakes are high education in that. The takeaway is being, you know, probably second to the president, the secretary serves the widest and most bizarre array of audiences, whether or not it's troop talks, which are a function of every trip sort of around the country and overseas, industry groups, think tanks, universities, Congress, and, and the mixture of testimony, but also policy talk. The, the other big takeaway is for cabinet officials, especially for Secretary of Defense, there's only three or four people who can plausibly be, you know, selected, nominated, and confirmed at any given time, you know, if you stretch it like five to six. And, you know, those people have different strengths and weaknesses and different theories of the case when it comes to what it means to inhabit the role of SecDef. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of fun. Panetta, of course, has been a, had been, by the time I got to work with him, a politi- an active politician for more than 50 years. And it was quite striking, the mixture of unbelievable political horse sense that had sort of absorbed the the strange period, you know, the strange bipartisan period of the 70s through 90s, a sense of humor, and also the ability to trust and delegate, which is, you know, an important thing when you're running something that is that massive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Hegel had this very mid-century modern sort of <laughs> Mr. Smith goes to Washington transatlantic eloquence. And he was unique in the sense that he is the first Secretary of Defense to have been an, an enlisted soldier before coming in. And so had a completely different take on the job, which was much more people-focused and spent a lot of time talking to, to the least well-paid and most vulnerable people, uh, members of the service. And, you know, I, I would also say that, you know, he really struggled with the, the crisis as it came a cropper because, you know, ISIS was... Mm-hmm the thing then, and I guess still is. And then of course, Carter, Carter is, you know, a consummate 
insider bureaucrat and probably the smartest person I worked for, which was an unbelievably interesting opportunity. But he had, you know, be, being the smartest person does not necessarily make you the best at making the building behave itself because everyone, you know, plenty of people are smart. Not all of them are necessarily going to be your friend. But there are case studies in different objectives in and around security. So all of them, you know, worked towards greater inclusion. And that again began what is called the Women in Service Review, uh, which Carter completed, which opened all combat roles in the U.S. military to women. Hegel, despite being, you know, having been a, you know, a Reagan appointee and a conservative Republican, was very, very clear about uh, LGBT service members. He was trying to, he, he sort of began the cultural process of pushing for the end of the, the, the original trans ban on um, service members, but also was very, very concerned about gay and lesbian service members and made sure that between Windsor and Obergefell, marriage equality was extended to service members by the DOD pocketbook. So DOD would recognize marriages by point of celebration rather than current residence. Uh, and he was also very, very concerned about military sexual assault. And Carter really sort of pushed in all directions at once, trying and, and got, you know, the end of women, you know, open up combat roles to women, which is why we'll eventually get a female cha- member, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, end of the trans ban and sort of a broader extension of LGBT rights inside the U.S. military, sort of enshrining them in equal opportunity law, which is this, the oversight for civil rights and civil service. I guess one of the questions that people have is, is, is what was the biggest myth that you failed to bust or uh, biggest misperception people have of DOD that you'd like for folks to go to oh, sure. a better appreciation of? So the last night before I, uh, the last night before I went over and became a, a speechwriter at DOD, I, I went to dinner with a bunch of the folks I'd worked with in Senator Kennedy's office. And one, and one of my good friends who works in uh, civil liberties and civil rights law, you know, who I've known for a decade, was joking that, you know, the Secretary of Defense gets to be Darth Vader. Like, you run the thing like the Death Star and you have sort of unquestionable power. Uh, and one, one of the really interesting experiences is, you know, in terms of all those reforms I just sort of touched on lightly, is how much it's a consensus-driven building and how much, you know, not surprisingly, all, bu- all bureaucracies have politics and bureaucracy will do its thing. You, you actually need to, you know, cultivate and maintain an alarming amount of relationships if you're SecDef. And that, you know, one thing that lots of people in the building and outside the building thought my job was to hang out with the secretary and just sort of like spitball cool speeches. But in fact, the secretary's job is to do lots and lots of high stakes traffic copying and lots of high stakes diplomacy, mm-hmm. both external on behalf of the United States and then internal, whether or not it's, you know, going to the members of the Joint Chiefs or the service secretaries or the head of uh, personnel readiness sort of to try to keep things running. But also if you have, you know, particular reforms or policy changes you need to pursue, you can't force them through. And this has sort of also been highlighted in, in the new Robert Draper book about the Iraq war and, and eventually about the collapse of Donald Rumsfeld as Secretary of Defense in terms of losing support from the JCS and the JCS and retired generals pressuring to get him out. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the strangenesses is that we tend to assume that people are more powerful than they are and things are more coherent than they are. I'm curious as your thoughts on the current uh, SECDEF because your job as a speechwriter was to help manage comms between the SecDef and the public. And now we have a SecDef who doesn't communicate with the public, or at least not as far as I can tell. So I'm sort of curious as to your take on, on just the messaging that's been going on the past uh, couple of years. You know, like all cabinet secretaries in this administration, it, it, it is starting with the C team and moving downwards because, you know, who, who wants to take a poison cup given, you know, or, or you know, what, what, uh, Jack Garner used to say about the vice presidency, a cup of uh, warm spit. Um, <laughs> and, and it's basically an impossible job to placate someone whose theory of the world is Fox News. And then, of course, the vice president who has a, a, a robust but quite sort of, you know, reactionary or revolutionary agenda. You know, I think Esper is survivable because he is so much of a non-entity and a non-threat because he's not competing 
for screen time with the president by going on television. I think it's a little frustrating because Esper has done things like he's announced this diversity initiative to make the Pentagon better. But as far as anyone can tell, it's it's all vaporware, of course, mm-hmm. which, I, which I've written about and I'm sort of you know, appalled by. And I think it's a real failure because the Pentagon gets an unbelievable amount of money from the American people. And part of that is to communicate. I mean, the, the three secretaries I worked for struggled to different degrees in terms of how comfortable they were being in front of the press and sort of how they wanted to stage that. And the Pentagon usually has, so the Pentagon has OSDPA, uh, public affairs, and there's you know a room full of colonels, uh, 06s, and then I guess Navy captains. And they, they sort of communicate different chunks of the Pentagon. There's always also a, a Pentagon as a, you know, assistant secretary of public affairs and a spokesperson. And in a democracy, it's bad that it's that much money, but it's also the nation's security that you are refusing to be transparent and direct about. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they, 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 are, they recently announced some, some sort of crackdown in terms of information sharing. And like the, you know, the, lots of different parts of the buildings have lots of different relationships with the press, right or, right or wrong, and this is not going to work. I think it's a real failure of leadership and character to say, you know, I, I have been put in this position of trust. I've been confirmed by the U.S. Senate, and I am responsible for, you know, life and death of, um, you know, American men and women, and you know, the the future of U.S. international relations. And I will not take any of this seriously and go to the public and explain myself. Yeah, and I guess to be fair, it wasn't just an Esper thing. Mattis, I think, helped create the precedent because he wasn't really all that out and about talking about things either. Yeah, and I think it's unfortunate because, like, you know, we're now, we're now, I believe, like, two years since the last Pentagon press briefing or some other bizarre number where, like, even the perfunctory thing where you you pop out and say, you know, by, by law, we're mandated to have an event where we talk about, that, you know, this report that has been published is unfortunate. And, yes, it started with Mattis um, in part because Mattis had a, you know, a, a, a perception of the president and the president's needs. But it doesn't mean that that trend should continue. And, in fact, you know, I, I am wary of saying it should be a requirement just because, you know, when you put things in law, then it starts to get elastic. Mm-hmm. But given given the nature of the job, you should be transparent before the American people and, and ready to, you know, sit in front of the Pentagon press corps, which, which includes, you know, some real all-star reporters and people who can really dig in and understand the issue set. And failure to do that should not be, you know, acceptable. Mm-hmm. Funny thing is that when I talk to people in the de- Canadian defense space, talking to one parliamentarian who said if they needed to know something about what the Canadian military was doing, they would call the Pentagon. Because they found the Pentagon more open and transparent than the Canadian military. Wow. I don't know if, don't know if that's still true, uh, the relative difference between the two, but it, it, it did provide quite a contrast. Now, besides leading out in national security, you actually have a day job. Uh, so Complex is uh, started by a guy I, I met initially at the Pentagon, a guy named Jason Crabtree. It's machine learning, artificial intelligence, and cybersecurity. And it is meant to sort of push forward research in those areas. What we do most famously is we have a product that is meant to stop what is called a gold or silver ticket attack, the kind of breach that happened to OMB and Marriott, where someone breaks into uh, a, you know, a organization and takes fake credentials, escalates those credentials, and uses it to steal a lot of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is, this is one of the more common kind of uh, cyber attacks. Mm-hmm. And it's also one of the more dangerous because, like, as you may imagine, you know the, pe- the people who broke into to Marriott are also the people who broke into United Health uh, a couple of years ago, and and that sort of thing. And so you can those people can start to aggregate those data sets and compare, you know, passport numbers and names with medications, things of that nature. It is a sort of risk management and risk protection that sort of thing company. It's a lot of fun. It's you know like a lot of military industrial defense firms. It, it's great because it's a lot of 
personalities I know, if not necessarily people I'm friends with, but it's it's been fun over the last couple of years to, you know, to work on it, the policy aspects of that, which are, in my case, banking and financial services, mm-hmm. uh, healthcare and health insurance, because obviously hospital networks are, you know, doing more and more things digitally and thus are at higher and higher risk. And then sort of a variety of other things. We also, because we do large scale data modeling, we're, we, are, we work with FEMA and other entities in terms of, you know, flood and insurance modeling. So I get to talk about more math and science than I ever thought I would when I was getting a graduate degree. And I guess, given your background, that means you're the comms person for this organization. Is that is that your role? Yeah, you know, yeah. I sit I sit between our, our CEO, um, who is a you know a ranger and a road scholar, uh, but at heart an engineer, mm-hmm. uh, and our, our CTO, who used to be a professor at the Air Force Academy. So at least when we talk computer science, I can be like, "Hi, remember your computer science class for people who don't do math? Let's do that." Yeah. Sure. Uh, but basically, I translate between the two of them. So I write a lot do a lot of policy briefing, public engagement, turn our products into policy statements. And, you know, uh, I also get to do uh, social impact. So we're doing a lot of stuff for diversity inclusion, inclusion in the day job. So it's nice to have that bleed over into ONS and back again. I do sort of global comms beyond the United States, which has been interesting because we have offices in the UK and Australia. So it's always good to see our friends in the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. And then there's sort of miscellaneous activities as assigned. So it's, it's, it's a good way to stretch and grow a little bit and prepare for a future beyond, you know, being a speechwriter again. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you spending time talking with us about both jobs you have and also the past that you've had. I think people forget that, that there's these folks who are working in the Pentagon whose job it is is actually talk to the public. Hopefully we'll see more of those folks uh, in the very near future. I guess, well, I guess my last question is, is, are you waiting to come back? Is this something you want to do is go back into government once, once uh, there's a, a different government in place? Or, or are you happy to stay out? in the civilian side of things. It, it would be, it'd be an honor to get asked to come back in and do it again. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I, I have you know, the, great, the great joy of being an American citizen is sometimes, especially if you're representing a minority group, is sometimes you're inside pounding the table and sometimes you're outside pounding the pavement and sometimes you're outside pounding on a locked door and yeah. hopefully that door will unlock and I can, I can go back in and do other things on behalf of both my community and you know, the American public. But I, you know, I got a great piece of advice shortly before I went over to the White House by a friend of mine who's a, a friend and mentor who was a senator's chief of staff at the time, which was, you know, you're not entitled to any one job in the White House and you're not entitled to any job in any administration. You know, if you, if you happen to be asked, it's a huge honor and so behave responsibly. So, you know, I, I would love to continue, I, I would love to continue to serve the public because, you know, there's really, no substitute for sort of mission-driven work, but you know there are obviously other things to do in the D.C. area. So we will see what happens and knock on wood, there will be a, uh, a government favorably disposed to democracy and civil rights in the near future. Yes, uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping so too. Thanks for speaking with us today on Battle Rhythm, Luke, and I wish you luck in your various endeavors. You're a very busy person, so I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thanks, Steve. It's always good to uh, catch up with you and speak with your listeners. On this week's R&R segment, I've got three things to watch and one book because it's Halloween and we should really watch stuff that involves zombies and demons and things like that. So there's a short British series called Crazy Heads. I'm trying to remember now. I think it was on Amazon, but it might be on Netflix, which which is about two British women who have the ability to see the demons among them. And then it's a 
six episodes, one season. It has fun. It's funny. It's moving. It's a quick watch. So I recommend that. There's on Netflix, a movie called Alive, which is a South Korean movie, uh, which has been dubbed into English, which features uh, a teenage boy who's really into the usual computer stuff and finds himself alone as a zombie vi- outbreak hits Seoul and he has to deal with living by himself and then he's no longer by himself. So I recommend that highly. It's a good quick watch. There's apparently going to be a, an American version made of that soon, but I, I think the, the, the one we watched holds up quite nicely. And because it's Halloween, one of my favorite movies and then sequels is has been on TV. And that's Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You. Happy Death Day is about a college student who wakes up kind of Groundhog Day-ish and ha- keeps on reliving the same day. And she keeps on getting killed by the same killer in different ways. And she keeps on trying to figure out ways to prevent her death. Then there's a sequel, which means that she somehow presented her death one time. And then the second movie is actually quite good and clever as well. So it's a interesting, dynamic, fun, funny, a little bit scary, but not too bad. Halloween kind of. Happy Death Day. Happy Death Day to you. And reading, I mentioned that what got me through last night's uh, bout of insomnia is a book by Lee Childs and his brother. He's now having his brother help write the, the Jack Reacher series of books. And the book is called The Sentinel. It just came out last night. I got it on Kindle. So I was able to do something while I couldn't go to sleep last night. So it's a good distraction from all the craziness that's going on in American politics and in the politics of other countries as well. So that's my recommendations for this week. Enjoy your Halloween. I hope you get more treats than, than, than tricks and hope the tricks are fun ones. Be well, keep your hands washed and wash and wear that Halloween mask, not just on Saturday, but all the time. Thanks. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.